we go. Sometimes a little nugget of magic will happen. Oh no, that's so much pressure. <laughs> I do really feel like I'm interviewing a conservative right-wing crank. You have that energy of like, we just called in this, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Like, I'll tell you something about Israel-Palestine. It's like, no. no. Welcome to Stand Up and Clown, the podcast. I'm your host, Chad Damiani. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we really appreciate the support. Our next Stand Up and Clown show, I'm just going to get this out of the way because we have a really exciting guest and I won't have to do any housekeeping once the show starts. November 27th, it will potentially be a Thanksgiving-themed show. We have some really big names. I don't want to announce them yet because I don't want to jinx us. I'm recording this the day after our Halloween show, and it was total chaos. You can find a ticket link in the episode notes. How do I describe this guest? We were just talking before we started the podcast, and we've worked together a bunch, but we really don't know each other. I will say they are an experienced veteran improviser who have started a clown journey, and that's really why we're having them on the show today. On DL... Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you so much for having me. Do you do a lot of podcasts? No, I think it, like, no, I've done some. Have they been about improv or have they been about other things? Yeah, so mostly Im improv, either like talking about improv or improvised podcasts. All right, before we get into it, because a lot of my listeners are pretty much straight clowns, so I'm going to want you to talk a little bit about how you got to where you are now. In improv, people know on DL, but in clown, a nobody, a straight zero. Not even there, invisible. <laughs> but I do want to ask you just to kind of set the table. Currently, how do you identify? Do you identify as an improviser, a clown, an actor? If someone asks you what you do, what do you say? You know what I started saying is I'm a teaching artist. And I started, I started saying that maybe five or 10 years ago because I was so uncomfortable saying improviser because it has so many different connotations in so many different communities that I didn't ever want to explain it. Um, Cause I was never like in a cab, you're like, I'm an improviser. And they're like, okay. Also, I have this feeling sometimes when I was just improvising and when I started doing clown and improv together, that it sounded like, oh, your job is your hobby. There's something about the word improviser yeah. that reeks of hobbyist. Well, yeah. And then I feel like there's always like, but what do you really do? And it was like, no, that's really, that's what that is. That's it. Yeah. I never feel, I like, I never felt comfortable being like, I'm an actor. I never felt comfortable being like, I'm a writer. And I think that's probably like weird <laughs> human insecurities or like fraud. fraud stuff. I think society has been built to shame us for wanting yeah. to do what we love. Yeah, I remember like being like confident in it of like, no, I am. I can remember when I used to write professionally, like that's how I made money. It was early on. Um, I worked with a guy named JP Lavin, still a good friend of mine. And he was waiting tables while we were writing scripts. And he went out with his girlfriend's friends 
and announced that he was a writer. And then some guy at the table said, but how do you pay the rent? And he did, and he buckled and he said, well, I I weigh tables. And and the guy said, well, that's what you do for a living. Isn't that just the meanest, most unnecessary thing? Just like horrifying. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Oh, so mean. Yeah. But what do you really do? And it's not wrong. No, I mean, it is wrong. It's wrong. Well, well, it's also, I think, too, like in America, but also many places, like we define people. That's the first question is, what do you do? And we mean for your job, where you make money. The whole system wants us defined by what is our contribution to capitalism. And I will tell you, Andiel and I make a very small contribution to capitalism. Hardly, if at all. <laughs> really want to talk to you about all the clown you're doing. And it's been very exciting to see you jump in. I don't think a lot of the people who are on stage with you know how long you've been doing this, which is <laughs> delightful to me because it's just like, yeah, Andiel, I met her in class. We're just, I'm like, you have no, we're talking decades and decades <laughs> of this. But I think that's so beautiful. It's so beautiful not to have that weight on your shoulders of just like, yeah, yeah, I'm here trying something new. But before we get to that, can you walk us through a little bit your theater slash improv slash acting journey? How did it all start out? Okay. Yeah. And stop me or redirect me if I get lost or boring. Um, <laughs> um, so I grew up, my dad was an actor, so I grew up in theater. I always did theater. And then when I was 15, um, I lived in California and the Second City alumni did a jam on the Santa Monica Pier on Wednesday night and you'd give five bucks and it was in this like dilapidated cafe and three groups of people who I like later found out were like television writers and all these like people I should have known would just do three heralds. Uh, And this is like pre-UCB, so it's like a little bit more organic um, and I had never seen anything like it. I was like, that's magic. That. Um, this is on the Santa Monica Pier? In the Santa Monica Pier. And I was, uh, I think, a sophomore in high school. So it was like the coolest thing I did. I was like, we drive down. We listen to the radio. I watch improv. I like, of course, started an improv group in my high school that was like wonderfully terrible. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I moved to Chicago Um and started taking classes at I.O., which was Improv Olympic uh, by Wrigley Field. And then two years after that, I got hired by Second City to tour in the touring company. Um, and like did a short stint um, in Social Issues Children's Theater before Second City. Social Issues Children's Theater. Yes, I uh, taught the youth not to bully and it worked. <laughs> Good for you. I guess that was a time where you would have to make a pilgrimage because we're talking, this is 20 years ago. Yeah. So that was, so I moved in 2001 and I did take the second city. I think it was the second city. Yeah. Had class in, I'm doing quotation, had classes in LA. Um, and so I took one class, but it was like four of us. And on breaks, everyone would just like take out their headshots. And I was like, Ooh, I don't think this is, for me. Um, and my dad had done theater in Chicago. So when we were little, we would go visit him. And it was like, again, I fell in love with the city. And I was like, oh, this is a magical city. Because when you're 12 and you're staying in like artist apartments, wandering. It's like magic. Pretty cool childhood. 
Yeah. To just be around a bunch of vagabonds and sort of free thinkers. I was I grew up with a mother who ran the transportation department for an elementary school and a dad who sold lumber. So I had no exposure to art of any kind until I would say even after college, because in college we did underground stuff, but it was very much like, I guess we're doing theater. I remember we had an adjunct professor named Jude Chonzer. I think I can say the name. I don't think she listens. She would teach acting classes and half the class would be her unpacking what went wrong with her career in New York. Oh, no. Which I thought was just how it worked. I thought that's what an acting class was, is that the teacher would just sit there and really like examine moments they could have done differently. Oh, my God. That was my uh, baptism into theater at Rutgers <laughs> University Camden campus, like a tiny little campus. Oh, wow. And is that what got you into it? You're like, yep, I want, I want this. I just never thought it was possible. So listening yeah. to you talk about, oh, my dad does it or my dad's friends do it. Mm. I just thought this was stuff I did for fun. It wasn't that I didn't pursue it at times. Going through high school, you know, you did talent shows, but I never thought like, oh, I can be on TV. In college, it's like, I'd rather do this than my math homework. Probably it wasn't until I was about 24 years old after I had done this stint in Atlanta working for this completely cursed website slash new channel they were making, but it was 1996. So we were still on modems. So like it was way ahead of its time having a streaming channel online. It was just impossible. And it was only after that experience that I moved to New York for the first time in my early twenties. And I was like, I'm going to be a playwright. So that was the first time I think I announced it to the world that like, oh, I'm actually pursuing this. This is what I'm doing. It's not something I do on the side to keep myself sane. Yeah. It's not the thing I do that keeps me somehow human and joyful while I do the other thing that I like to do. And it's still not the thing that keeps me human and joyful. It very much destroys me from the inside out as a career. Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like once it turns into that, there's so many more elements. Because the other thing too is like, so I was born in Chicago, but we moved to California when I was three. So my dad could pursue acting here and then he quit and started like raising us. So I also have that like failed, quote unquote, failed artist or what happens when it doesn't work out vibe. When I see someone out here hustling and raising kids, I have so much respect for it, but also it almost suffocates me because I know what I go through. Yeah. I have, with the exception of an elderly dog that's going blind, no obligations, and a girlfriend who lives in Santa Monica that is completely financially independent. I'm just doing what I want and I still feel it's impossible. Oh, yeah. I, I think about that constantly as like the specific lack of responsibilities that I've created so I can live this life. It, and then like come home and see my sister as you have children and I'm like, good, good job. Great job. You want me to take them for an hour? It's blows my mind. I have friends that I felt like I was so much more responsible than in college that are now raising kids and clearly are so much more responsible than me and, okay. and more responsible than I'll ever be. Oh yeah. There's so many things I want to talk to you about and I'm trying to figure out the order. Can we talk about this event you and I both went to the other night called the Clownies? 
Sure. I'm so curious what your perspective <laughs> I absolutely loved it oh, for all the yeah. things that made it such a disaster. <laughs> the basic rundown here is two clowns we both know, Hannah and Elizabeth. I'll leave out their last names because this was a bit of a shit show. <laughs> put together this incredibly ambitious night. They rented a theater. They put out a red carpet. They had clowns all dress up. I think they sold over 80 tickets. The place was completely packed. Oh, yeah. And then essentially gave awards to 50 people, maybe every single person in the audience. They tried They tried to do everyone. I don't know. Yeah, I think they might have succeeded. So 80 awards. Let me just describe the lobby area. So they have this really fun setup where you can take pictures like you're at the Oscars. But then they have, I guess, a craft service type table that if COVID was food. Oh, yes. How gross was that table? I walked in and I was like, I feel weird about this. And then the the friend I was with was like, I, I think we all just decided we're done and, and we get to just like, we're excited that we can touch other people's food. And and that was the vibe of like, we're excited that we're both touching the same grapes and it's going in one of our mouths. That table was a crime scene. <laughs> there there was clearly food that had been picked up and put back. Do you know what I'm talking about? There was these mini Cinnabons and like they were turned over. I'm like, a human hand did that. Hopefully. And cheeses, just cheeses that oh, look yeah. like, like ratatouille bites out of the cheese. I'm not going to spend too much time here. They also threw a new person in the community into the tech booth who clearly oh, that, never okay. done tech. Yeah. Did not work there. Didn't know what was going on. They kept doing this amazing thing when songs would come in and out where they would just slowly raise the volume and lower the volume on their phone instead oh. of using the board. So it would always be so slow and uneven. I mean, it, this is all me praising this event. This was the most, yeah, I was so proud. So they did a clown vet, right? This was what a clown yeah. event. Yeah. The show starts with the hosts on in the dark. They never turn the stage lights on. So they're just, the show starts and it's just a couple house lights in the back. And then there's a bunch of conversation. So right off the bat, I'm like, here we go. You did three costume changes while you were on stage with six other clowns. I was like, what a great way to fully take the spotlight hostage <laughs> well because i uh, so what was great and also i think when we're talking about like what i love about this for me right now is like you show up and you kind of understand what's happening and you have no idea right so like you get this invitation that's just like buy a ticket to the show and you're like okay <laughs> They're saying, like, we're going to give awards to everyone. You're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's, like, a bit, which is also great, that, like, confusion of expectation of, like, am I going to show up? Am I going to have to do something? Right. <laughs> but I'd be asked to do an act that I haven't prepared, which is, like, part of the, like, the beauty of, of Clown is, like, you can prepare and then also you cannot prepare and you're going to get thrown into stuff and you're there for this like experience. And so I was like, if I'm going to dress up and they said formal wear required, I have to do a bit like at least for myself. So whether or not it happens, whether or not I have the moment, I'm going to wear two dresses under a jumpsuit and sweat for as long as I need to. 
and hope that the moment arrives where other people are watching me when I take off the shelves. Perfect clown moment. <laughs> All that work and effort, knowing it might never happen. Also, just to be in discomfort for such a long stretch. To put dresses under a jumpsuit, just in general, is, sounds so uncomfortable. Yeah. I also really encourage people who are new to break all the rules of composure. Like just to have a show like that, that's so messy and so loud and the sound doesn't quite make sense. One of the mics was never on. We had two hosts. One had a mic that was working. The other, it never worked. No one corrected this. But this is how you discover new ways to do things because we're too composed, right? We've been doing this too long and we know what it's like to do a tight show and to hit our marks and to have a perfect moment in the blackout and how to talk to people after the show. We actually do narrow our possibilities for new things. So when you see a show like this, that's so chaotic, you're like, this is where you'll find something that you, you or I couldn't think of. Yeah. And it's organic and amazing and can only happen in that situation. And then what you do with it is either enjoy it for what it was or take it and refine it and turn it into something again, magical uh, and repeatable. Can you take us to the moment you were improvising? It's post-pandemic. You also teach. What was going on with you before you decided to dip your toes in clown? So I've always been interested in it. Like I watched Laurel and Hardy when I was a kid. Like always loved it. Um, when I was on the ETC stage in Chicago, people would come up to me after the show. So it's a sketch review. So you're performing sketches that you wrote and created in process and people would be like you're a clown um i'd be like oh okay <laughs> and so <laughs> there was clearly something that i was putting out that already had this thing going on that was the impetus for like i want to get it i want to understand what i'm organically doing and actually learn how to do it so that was like maybe the first part so i started taking like physical theater classes or neo-futurists or stuff like that after i got off the stage in chicago and then I took an idiot class pre-pandemic and a class through the actors gang, which I love the way that they describe what they do, which is a bastardization of media dell'arte and viewpoints. Because that was another one. I was doing a show in La Jolla. Theater practitioner after the show came up and was like, you studied viewpoints? And I was like, I've never heard of it. Thank you so much. I will study it now. <laughs> so I had taken those two classes and taken a week-long Gallier workshop in Berlin. And that was like pre-pandemic, pandemic, I did a lot of things. Like I did a year of care work in Scotland because I was like, there is no other time I will ever be this generous with my time or like do something that's so hard for me and so giving unless I'm like kind of forced into my apartment. And then did like a tour of teaching, uh, then spent six months in Hawaii with my grandparents, helping care for them. Uh, and got back to LA and was like, I need to play. I need to be in my body. And as a teacher, what I want to create for my students is a playground where they can explore or be free or take risks or feel good um, and get out of their heads. Like that's as an impro improv teacher, that's my goal is to get, let people get out of their heads. And there was this like clown community and you specifically who offered that to me. And I was like, that feels very necessary as a human 
and very excited. And so I dipped in in March and took a workshop with you and was like, yeah, yeah, like that, the feeling, that refresh of like why I can play and feel like I'm new, why I can like access that part of me that is a child and doesn't know all the rules yet and isn't trying to do something good or isn't trying to like prove that I should be in a room. And what I loved about this community, like you already said, is like, nobody fucking knows me. I don't know if I can curse. Um, sure, <laughs> okay, great. Um, and so I just get to come in and try and fail and work and play and discover in a way that isn't always access- accessible to you when you've been doing this for two decades or this type of work or art for that long. What I love about young clowns, and I mean young in age too, like mm. people who are in their 20s, maybe up to 30, they're curious, but they don't delve. There are just certain things you do on stage, a level of composure and composition that I'm sure they're like, oh, Andale's really good at that. And there's no thought to be like, why are you good at that? Like, they just don't think about it. They're just like, huh, I guess that's just what they do. It just makes me laugh because it's like, how are you not noticing? And it's because they're so consumed with their play and they're so free and they're clowns. And so it's just like, oh, this is who this person is. I already embrace who they are. So I don't think it's because they don't care. I think it's just because they're like, that's who this person is and that's enough. Oh, yeah. And it is like such a present art form or or playground where it is like what's happening right now. That's the only thing. Like, it doesn't matter where you were before or where you're going after. Like, this thing right now is the thing. And so it like frees itself for that of like, what are we together? What are you doing? What am I doing? Okay. I'm curious when you were teaching and even before that, when you were touring, you were bringing a bit of a different energy, which can be refreshing. But were there points where you ever felt that you didn't have the same strengths as other players or was what you were contributing just so clearly necessary that you always felt completely accepted by improv and sketch? I always felt accepted and comfortable, but I came in with theater and it's like when you start when you're, what, 17, you have this confidence where you're like, I'm obviously great. Like, obviously I'm great. Obviously I'm going to do this, which I don't have now. I miss it so much. And so I just brought brought what I brought. There were um, in training, for sure, times where it was clear that like my skill set was different than other people's skill sets or with certain teachers who emphasize certain things as like, I am an energy emotion player, even improvisationally, unless I train and practice, I'm not going to be super wordy. I'm not going to be super witty. So there's like, yeah, different access points. But I would say I always felt pretty comfortable because I think even in improvisation, the best groups have, it's a mishmash of different styles and skills and type. And that's what creates the magic to me. And that's what I like too about the clown community or like what you do, which is bringing different disciplines together. Like, let's see what happens when we put a stand up with this or we're all coming from different backgrounds that should be celebrated. So I think philosophically, especially when I switched more to teaching than playing, that was so that was so clear and so important to me. It's like, oh, no, no, no. The more different we are, the more ways we find to allow ourselves autonomy to play the way that we play inside of agreed upon structure and then not be afraid to break the structure when something more exciting comes along. That was always so clear to me that I never felt like othered. I did get a review. <laughs> 
I did get a review on that first ETC show that I can't remember exactly what it said, but it was basically like, she doesn't talk enough. Oh man, that's amazing. I'm like, okay, fair enough. I've had this really fun journey as a teacher because there was a short stretch, not the years you've put in, where I was coaching and teaching some improv because that's what I felt most comfortable doing. I was in a group that was already a clown improv fusion group, but I was trying to teach improv. And when I was in that period of my life, I felt like my job was, how do I get everyone in line? Like, how do I get everyone to work together and create something together? And now when I teach and I've taught a ton of clown, I'm always thinking, how do I not ruin this person? Oh, you know what I mean? yeah. Like, yeah. When you see this thing that feels like, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how it fits into a formula. I don't know how this person goes on stage for five whole minutes. But when they're on stage for about 30 seconds to a minute and they're so authentic, I'm so into it. I'm so invested. And it's like, well, how do I get them to five without spoiling this formula? Oh, that's really interesting. That like touches a bunch of points. I think like one is and I think you're really good about this is like teaching through kindness first. And Mick Napier is really big on that. It's um, Annoyance Theater in Chicago. And he goes, he goes hard for people. Like, you know, he loves you when he's giving you shit. But the ethos of his teaching is through kindness. And I feel like to me, that also means like letting people be who they are and then being like, here's the gift. Here, here's my offer for like options for ways to play. You can take these, try them on. And then also you're going to find your own way um and your confidence in that is, is gonna like keep you going but yeah how do i not ruin you and i think well i also think like a lot of schools or a lot of institutions because they have to has such like a stricter formula and so that can make people feel like they're failing oh yeah and i mean it is it's you're all playing basketball yeah you know and i say that with no disrespect because basketball there's been what a billion basketball games played. They're all different. They all have different points of drama and excitement, but the rules are codified. Mm -hmm. So we have to get people playing on the same court, scoring points in the same way. And then within that, we find different stories to tell. Or you have six people on stage with different agendas. And that's kind of what Clown is trying to do. Clown is like, well, what if we do though? What if we put them in this court, give them a couple balls, but if they want to throw the chairs into the hoop or, you know, they want to run around and make their own game, they can. It's way harder. Well, because I think there's like, it, it, because you're not going in, it's what good improv is too, is you're you're playing with an uncertainty. Like if you say we're playing basketball, I'm like, great, I know the rules and I'm bad at it. This isn't fun. <laughs> but if you're like, here's a court, here's a ball, here's the rules of basketball, that'll get you started. And then opening up the possibilities of like, great, there's also an accordion on the side. Like what what would happen if you went and picked that up? And I think for me what like, well, there's a lot of things and I'd love to know your opinion, but like the presence and the delight in discovery is like what keeps it together or the aftercare of like, great. So like once you make that move that's outside of the realm of the rules we've established, either intentionally or by mistake, the moment after is when everyone goes, oh, what's going to happen? And to me, that's like players and audience. And then it's a moment that's the fun to me 
especially doing imp- imp- improvising for 20 years, you got to suck me in. Um, and it's usually about presence and what we can create that no one else can create together. And it's usually about connecting with the other human and being like, okay, I love what you did. It was crazy. It didn't make any fucking sense. I love it. What do we do now? Now, when you say the human, are you yeah. talking about ensemble mates or audience or both? All both. I feel like, and I, yeah, I'm interested. I feel like if you can only focus on one thing, you're probably focusing on your partner. But if you can have that like open presence and open awareness, it's a conversation between all of you. Because that's also, I think, why we improvise or why I improvise, why I love it, is it's a conversation between yourself and the audience and being sensitive and open to the input of all of those things. You are talking about a lot of things I'm writing about right now because I'm trying to figure out how to talk about clown in a way that is more conversational, just like the conversation I want people to have with the audience. I want it to be easy and simple and direct. I think with improv, like you said, sometimes there's an accordion on the side. And the challenge with improv is that we have rewarded a certain type of success for years, right? You're going through a program. We keep rewarding the same type. And then there's a point where you're like, step away from that success and take a risk. And I think for some people that's super hard. Now, is that the fault of the program or is that the person needing to be more open to those possibilities? I mean, a program is a program. And I think with clown, the issue is, yes, you're having these moments like you said, of discovery, this this great thing. And then there's this explosion in the moment of discovery. The clowns don't realize that the audience is the primary thing in that moment. Mm-hmm. Like they need that connection with the people they're playing with if they're on stage with people. But clowns have so much fun playing that they forget who they're playing for mm-hmm. and how that's the singular goal is that you can have the best time on stage, but if that audience doesn't leave and feel like the conversation was with them, then to me, that's not a clown success. Yeah. And to me, that's not a theater, you know, or, or any, a theater success or art or yeah, collaboration. Yeah, I think because, and I don't know if this is true, but because I've gotten to tour to so many different places and play in so many different situations for so many different types of audiences, that's been a motivator for me there's a great book about music that says find what you love and practice that and so it's like well what do I love about improv that's what I'm going to practice and that's what I'm going to teach so much of that is about that open connection of finding like the mischief or the vulnerability in those moments and being able to hold them and play with them flexibly and play for any audience not losing myself how do I hold on to who I am as an improviser and an artist and the things that are important to me and also play for every audience, play for an audience in Istanbul that doesn't speak English. What an amazing like, challenge and delight that is. And oh, that must be great. I would love that. Especially because I do so much of the silent clown and I do feel the whole point is universal message. That's all I'm chasing. Same, yeah. And I think that's also why I like and why I do well in different countries or different spaces because I play so physically and I always have that like yeah uh, when I moved so I worked at Boom Chicago which is a English-speaking theater in Amsterdam and they hire you and then you get there and they're like just so you know all of your pop culture references are dead here like they won't work 
And so people have a really hard adjustment period. Some improvisers, because they're so used to that working, especially coming from like LA or UCB or more like game-based styles. And so it is a breaking down of like, oh, okay, well then what? And I... That is one of the biggest issues I think that faces improv. I always say this during the podcasts. I love improv. I tease it a lot. I want to see it be fruitful and multiply. I want to see you all do well. But one of the things that I think it's going to face more and more as it chases inclusivity is that any art form steeped in someone's cultural experience, pop culture or otherwise, then you're going to have a dominating culture, right? So I can remember when I was coming up, just having people react because someone in the group didn't know a Star Wars reference or didn't know about a certain type of food. And that became the unusual thing. And that was the game was like, you don't know this. I think improv in general is much better about it, but I don't know what they do if they really want to have everyone involved. Like, I do think there has to be this shift away from, well, this is what I'm reading on social media. This is the music I listen to. These are the shows that I watch. But it's so steeped in that. What do you think with Boom Chicago was the key to getting people on the same page to kind of strip that away and just play in a more universal way? Well, I think Boom is its own beast. Like, Boom is a very specific thing. So it was about figuring out what works for you there and doing that because it's short form based. Again, I feel like traveling has been really good for me in that aspect of being like when I pop into this place or depending on what school these students have learned, from, what challenges am I coming into or or what do I have to learn from this? I think getting groups of people together from different places is the best way to do that because then it just like bottoms the field. And I feel like starting with something that's just simple and true to life and like, let's just talk as people before we get into what what I see or what I think when I see you, what I think is interesting or unusual, let's just break it down to like the most base level of connection, which is let's just say a couple of things about ourselves. Let's just mirror each other. Let's get into each other's physical like space. Let's discover where our boundaries are, where our play is and go from there. And then I think having like having an independent teacher like me paired with a more structured teacher is ideal because then you're getting someone who's like we got to keep it together we got to play the game these are the beats we're gonna hit like when we're doing this and then i get to come and be like okay that's great if that's working that's great but the second something is more fun we're gonna do that and you don't lose the game because our brains crave structure and culture and reference and i also like i think more specifically to like the cultural thing because that's a very specific style is the first unusual thing I think being open about that conversation as a teacher and as a group in those moments, like we just did, is super important because it's as simple as giving names, right? So that's one school is like, you got to give each other names, which I never make my students give each other names because I don't use people's names in conversation, but like we got to give each other names. So if I'm coming from a different culture as you and I call you Andiel or I call you Rishar and you're like, Crazy. Yep, I've seen this a million times. And then, like, that's what the scene is about. Instead of like, yeah, uh, like, yeah, cultural exchanges. I think it's a hard time in the world in general. But like, the more we bring our culture 
there's a great improviser in Oslo, Ari, and he's doing great work on on that respect of like bringing different cultures or awareness of cultures into improvisation and instead of being afraid of it like i'm i'm a white woman and so i have a very specific set of experiences and understanding and so me teaching is always going to skew that way so the more i can look at my bias look at what i'm coming into the room with that i don't even see and the more places i can mix with people of different cultures and really hear and understand so maybe god that was such a bad that was like a rambling i didn't answer the question I didn't get to a point. I didn't finish sentences, Chad. Very right wing person, oh, I assume. Right wing, like, ah, you know. Right wing mug. I think honestly, I think when we're talking about stuff like that, it's about it's about listening more than talking. Especially if you find yourself in a position of power, which even though it's made up, if I'm teaching a class, I have that power, yeah. and so I need to be searching and listening and understanding more. I think about this stuff all the time. I have decidedly put all my energy into introducing people to clown. I don't run any long-term classes. Yes, there are groups that I put up at Catsby that I'll give my opinion on, but I very much want them to figure it out. I very much want to be hands-off. And so my approach is everything universal, everything from the perspective of we're all children on the playground and we don't recognize differences that society and culture recognize, but that stuff is important. I just feel like in the beginning, I feel like it should just be, you're shy, you're a bragger, you have too many ideas. Like these are the things that we all agree on. There's, they aren't specific to one culture. Kind of my motto with that is like, how do we connect? Not how do we consume? Because we consume all day and we consume different things, but we all connect pretty much the same way. There, there are some slight differences, but I don't want gender to play a role. I don't want age to play a role, orientation to play a role. But I also realize that stuff is important. Oh, man, there's no good. What's great is there's no good answer. But I think like the awareness of it is helpful. And then still like aiming at those things of like your curiosity and trust and, and that openness of like, what do I see as universal? And is that the same as you? How do we play with that? And then if we want to dig deeper, have we established a relationship where we can, right? Right. If we establish that just human relationship, and now can we establish what's different? I will say that the good thing about Catsby for me is it's super inclusive and I get to play with a lot of different people. And some of those people are exploring who they are in the world specific to, you know, who they love, how they were raised. And so- they like to push against me as sort of this white, straight, cis male authority figure. And we have a lot of fun with it. And I feel very comfortable in that role because they're dictating how they play into this. You know, Jamonte and Deshaun, they really love to sort of taunt me and play with me and sometimes, you know, make racist accusations all in the sense of like fun of like, well, this is the world. And, you know, if you get caught, doing the wrong thing, but in a way that I think is super valuable and healthy. But of course it's on their terms and, you know, stuff with the queer community too, like this idea of who we are and, and, and how we identify if there's a clown at Catsby that wants to push against me in that way, I'll absolutely happily and, you know, excitedly play my part in that. But I want it to come from them. You know, like I feel like so often you know, in this position of privilege, 
it's like, we want to address this and we want to do that. You know, it's like, we're still pushing our agenda on people who might very well not want to deal with any of this shit on stage. And if they don't want to, great. Well, because it's, it's like, it, it's to me, I can only see it through my filter, which is like, so I'm a woman when I enter a space and you're like, you got to write some women shit because there's some stuff going on. And I'm like, that, okay. But have you seen me play? Like, have you seen me as an artist? What do I lead with? What am I interested in? What am I as a player? What, a, what am I as an artist and as a human? And if I want to delve into that, great. That should be coming from me because if I walk into a room and what you what you see is what you say, you're putting that identity onto me and you're saying, this is the thing that I see when you walk in the room. And that's not mine. Yeah, that's not mine. I think this might have been specific to IO West, but when I went through that program, there was this level that at the time I really enjoyed. And now when I look back, I'm like, I think we weren't qualified to do this. And essentially the whole level was, well, what do you bring onto stage with you? Do people think you're nerdy? Do they think you're high status? There was one point where you would just stand and everyone in class would kind of say what they saw. Was this something that existed at I.O.? I did that. I mean, I had that happen in an on-camera class, which is it's it's useful as long as you know that it's a tool and not something that you have to do or who you are, especially in industry cities. We're trying to please and we're trying to get jobs. And so I think it can be really easy, especially for younger players to be like, oh, if that's what you see, then I'll play into that. We're like, oh, great. That's what I am. Thank you so much. That's work yeah. for me. I'll get work. Yes. Yeah. 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 And versus like taking it for what it is, which is like one perspective and then deciding how you want to play with that tool of like, oh, great. So I'm going to fuck with that perception or I'm going to lean into it or I'm going to lean in and then fuck with it. I made a mistake early in my teaching career because I had had this experience where being an older man and being kind of broad and and muscular, pretty muscular, if I can say so on DL. Uh, this is this that. is not a video podcast, but if you've never seen me, dear God. Oh, okay. I guess like send some pictures or put, put them up in the show notes. I don't know. <laughs> some thirst traps in the show notes. <laughs> yeah. You joking. Thirst traps of you. But I realized I had this moment where I was like, oh, when I dance or I act delicate, it's great for me. I like doing it too. I feel good doing it. And so because I was having this experience, I had a student who was like six foot nine. I spent a whole run of a class. I only teach intensives now, but back in the day, I'd teach normal classes. I was really pushing them to take up more space and enjoy taking up more space. And guess what? That didn't bring them joy at all. They had been big their whole lives. Oh, yeah. It always yeah. felt like they were in the way. And I think, you know, looking back, I probably soured them on certain elements of clown work because in my head, I was just so focused on, I can get you a laugh. I can get you a reaction that I didn't take into account. Maybe that's not what you want to bring. Maybe that's not what you want the focus to be. And in that particular class at iOS, I remember loving it. And then there was this one moment where we were doing that thing you talked about, like an acting class also. We're all just talking. And this fairly attractive woman went up and everyone was now going to say what kind of roles they thought she should be. <laughs> and I remember this is the moment where I'm like, this isn't right. Oh, this is bad. Yeah. It was so many guys in the class and it's all stuff like they were like, you look like you think you got it all figured out. <laughs> it was just all, all their insecurities. 
being just vomited out on. And this person was so funny. And they were just like, they were like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, this is all day. They yeah, hate this, but totally also it's that. been their whole life is this conversation. Like this shit, yeah. Well, there was like, it's like two things. I was doing a show with uh, an older improviser and they were talking about this like young couple in love and they were describing the boy and they described like all of these action words of like, he was really intentional with his movement. He was smart. He, you know, liked Tolstoy. <laughs> hit the girl is like, she was blonde and had blue eyes. What a beautiful, and, and like with no awareness. And I feel like that is so steep. To, and a lovely man, truly no awareness that he oh, I know. really just physically described a woman and then described the personality of the boy as though like, well, that is how it Writing is so telling to my, my girlfriend is a novelist um, and she's in a writing group. And at one point it was all women. And then this poet, this man joined the group and he wanted to get away from poetry and he was writing a romance novel. Once in a while, she'd send me clips, like little excerpts from his writing. <laughs> and he would do this thing where he was a poet. So his writing was actually quite beautiful and economic. But every time a woman would come into it, one, they always had, and it was always this quote, I'm sure he didn't even realize, but they always had heavy pendulous breasts. And then- there would just be a moment like they would he'd be writing a really good scene where it felt like two fleshed out characters. But then the woman would reach over to grab something and they were always like in a man's shirt or a sweatshirt. And whenever they moved, their pendulous breasts would sway. It was just I was like, this is some of the most brilliant comedy writing because it's so restrained. so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. But again, she would say it. She goes, I, she goes, we keep telling him. We're like, you know, he's in a, he's in this group, all women. And we're like, listen, we love your writing, but we don't necessarily think you need this. And he would be so receptive. But then the next would thing would come himself back over and over again. Oh, I would laugh so hard. But also because he was good. He was a good writer. Oh, yeah. We all, I mean, it's a blast. I feel like we all have our blood. But can I ask, do you remember what, because I, do you remember how they described me? Do you remember what they described you as or what they saw you as? I mean, this was during your very buff, very attractive period, do you think? At this point, I was much leaner, but I was in great shape. I was about 20 pounds leaner. I had just lost my partner and had gone into iOS program because I just wanted to get back into improv again. So I was maybe six months removed from this catastrophic event in my life. And I was working out like someone going through a midlife crisis. You know, it's funny now I, I carry more weight and everything is built for longevity. But then it was like I was trying to destroy myself. Like I, I just wanted to work out so hard that I didn't feel that stress. Yeah. And so I did great. I was like, you look like a serious character. Like you look like someone who gets stuff done. And I was like, because I look like your dad because I'm 40 years old. This is the only reason that you see that, you know, but it did feel nice. And. And it felt like, oh, okay, like they take me seriously and this and that. And then this poor woman. There was a bunch of people. Juzo Yoshida was in this class. Oh. And that was also a shit show. Yeah. When yeah. Juzo, who was also at that point, looked about 30, but was probably like 48 years old, spoke English as a second language. And just this bunch of young white dudes kind of breaking down who they, I remember stuff like, you look like someone who might run a store. I was like, guys. Yeah. It's horrifying. Well, and I do feel like stuff like that, while 
terrible brings light to things that we sometimes don't talk about in improv when we're like, do a relatable scene. And everyone's like, we are too, we are married people and normal. And then something great. And it's, we don't realize how much we, I think, like put up our own blockers based on like what we think or what already exists. We can't talk about this now, but I think that's, there's a very interesting tie between grief and artist, artistic endeavor. Because I think it came up during our class. Like I just spent six months with my grandparents and was with my grandfather when he passed. And then came back and like similarly like working out and by looking for that like getting back into after that thing of like I don't know what it was like for you but like trying to find that connection or that visit or trying to get outside of yourself or inside of yourself initially grief really served me because I'd just gone through this really terrible experience I'd witnessed death in person not just once by the way because when you're with someone who's sick they're also around people who are sick. I saw three different people at the moment that they took their last breath in a period of three months. If you have never seen it before, it is really this sobering thing and it's not the experience you expect it to be. So I'd gone through all that. I'd gone through just two years of devastation. So then when I went back, I was just immediately a different improviser. I just didn't care. And I don't mean didn't care like I wasn't having fun. I was just like, I wasn't driving to shows. Andiel, I would drive to shows before this incident. And I would just imagine random suggestions that could have been said by an audience. And then what I would do. As if like the chances of that happening, like I was like, could you imagine if one of these suggestions happens? What a great position I'll be in. Because I'll like, this is how little I understood. Like I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be ready. I'll be ready and they won't even know and I'll be so funny. So that was me pre this incident. I was a writer from head to toe. And then afterwards, it was just like, oh, none of this matters. I don't care if I fail. I don't care if I succeed. And then there came a point where I needed to care again. I needed to care again. So I had all this confidence and ease on stage, but there was a spark missing. And when I started working with Juzo Yoshida in Jetso, because he wouldn't listen at all and because he was getting so many laughs and he was so free and he was such a natural clown, I was embarrassed a lot because I would try to do things and then he would destroy them. And then I would have this moment of true embarrassment and then the audience would laugh. I was aware enough that that's what I wanted. So I was like, okay, hold on. Instead of getting upset, I'm getting the best laughs I've ever gotten by feeling out of sorts, decomposed, off balance. So I, at least I had this moment where I was never mad at him because I was, people would come up to us after and they're like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh my God, you guys, I've never seen him like this before. I was like, oh, it's because what you're seeing is my true horror on stage that I can't control what's going on. I had to recover from the grief too. So the grief gave me courage. And then the process of dealing with the grief gave me permission to feel and lose and fail and go through all those emotions again. I'm not glad the incident happened, but I do feel like I'm the artist I am because it happened. Yeah. And and metabolizing it that way and being with yourself over those stages is really beautiful. And I think like ultimately that loss of control and giving up control, what you just said is really, yeah. Yeah. It's the hardest thing. I'm sure there was a point where you lost the butterflies completely, right? You just had done too many shows. You knew 
when you were in a show, you had a show the next day and the next day. And there's a comfort in that. It's like you're in your second tour at Vietnam. You know, you're like, listen, I've been here. I've been in the trenches. And then something about the spark of your play goes away. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I have to find that again. Yeah. What started this, this improviser's finding crown is finding that new spark or, yeah, that that awareness or that remembrance of the joy of not knowing or the terror of not knowing. And I think it's both. Like, you, you just said it so beautifully of like being in that moment and not quite knowing why and not quite knowing where you're going and staying in it instead of going back to the stuff you already knew or trying to regain I have this experience every time we do one of these stand-up and clown shows because I've put myself at this high authority point but these shows I cannot predict them I cannot control them I come out claiming I can do it and I come out trying to convince the audience that I will have a stranglehold on this show. There have been two shows. The last show, the one we had in September, I lost control so quickly. And there were two clowns, uh, Cameron Farmer and Kyle Mazzono, who just, they just kept dancing whenever they were on stage and they would just ignore me. And the whole crowd was cheering and clapping. So as a good clown boss, I can't stop that because I can never stop the fun. Like my job is not to stop the fun. It's to point out when there's a dip or to yeah. celebrate it, but also they're defying me. So I ha I'm walking this line and the audience knew I'd lost control. The clowns knew. And so it was 90 minutes of from underneath trying to keep the whole show together. Yeah. But then last night I had Brooks Whelan and John Daly, two comics I really admire and enjoy and like as people. But they just had that moment that happens sometimes when you're confronting new work, despite me giving them every warning possible not to fight back. And they just got into their stand-up modes and they started like talking back to me. And I'm in this moment where I'm like, oh, I've got these two guys up here. They're the first turn. This isn't as joyful. It's more confrontational. In that moment, I was like, let me just look at this audience because I'd just given the whole speech about like, hey, let's make them earn their laughs. And I just looked at them and without losing my temper or fighting back, I was like, is this what we want? And they all resoundingly started booing these guys. And their faces were delightful. They were like, oh shit. They're like, we thought, because in a com comedy club, if we did this, the audience would be like, these are the two bosses here. But instead they booed and someone yelled, just do it. It was amazing because in that moment, again, I'd lost control. But instead, I was like, I'm going to let the audience do the work for me. So this show provides me all these opportunities to face things I've never experienced on stage and a level of energy I've never experienced. And for me, that's crucial because I got to be honest, there's a lot of times where I just go to a show and I'm, I could be looking at my phone two seconds before I walk out. I'm in full costume and I'm just <laughs> watching reels because it's like, I've done this before and I know I'll turn it on as soon as I see the light. And I don't want to be that performer. Like, yeah. that's not why we're here. Well, and I think that's such a great way of thinking of it. Like different roles and different shows give you different things and feed other parts of your art or your teaching of like your role in stand up and clown is so specific. And the role of the people playing it is so specific. And like there's play within that. Where do I fit is such a great way of thinking about it. And then like, what does this do for me and other aspects? I feel like that's why I like teaching is it reminds me 
when I'm not playing, it, it points like that bright finger where it's like, you're not doing the thing that you're making other people do. Yeah. Having to say it out loud and you're like, am I doing that? You're like, oh, shit. <laughs> I did have a question for you because it's something I deal with a lot. You've been playing with an ensemble called Mum quite a bit. I've seen you just playing with other people randomly. Do you ever feel a little stuck in the role of caretaker? Because you do have show sense and you do know what's happening on a grander level than most of the people you're playing with. Is there room for you to be the spoiler, to go out and create havoc? Have you have you found that balance? You know, in improvisation, 100%. Because when I play with students, I think it's super important to not Caretaking to me is a lot of different things, right? Sometimes it's like legitimately being like, how do I keep this together? Sometimes it's legitimately being like, I need to fuck with you so that you come back to me. Sometimes it's wandering off stage so that people get their moments. I think sometimes teachers who play with other people find themselves in a specific role of caretaking. I think improvisationally, I know that that's super flexible. And so I'm looking at each moment or trying to pull myself into presence. Not what's needed here, but like, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do and what am I not going to do? You have this ton, this wealth of experience that you kind of know. But when you're doing something like mum, because I got to tell you, I notice this a lot. I see you watching and I see you come in and galvanize the central point of the game. Like you find a way to create a movement or a point of focus in a way that's really valuable. But I also know as someone who's in that position a lot, well, sometimes I want to do that for a show. And sometimes I want to come in and break what the other people do. And I want to be the one who gets permission. Well, so what I'll say with specifically mom is I don't actually feel like caretaker. I feel like new player. And so what I what I'm noticing in me playing with mom is being like the little kid who's just trying to fit in a little bit. Right. Of like, I'll I'm not at like the first show we did. There's internal edits and I didn't edit at all because I by nature, I'm a support player. I like to see what's happening and like then jump in. And so I've noticed like that. And I think part of it is because we haven't rehearsed. I've played with them three times. To me, I'm still learning them and I'm still like trying to establish trying. To me, the way that I do that is just like hang out. And I do feel like I'm missing that spark or that risk-taking aspect, right? Like I feel like I'm doing like a couple things I'll say like the best moments for me have been pushing something physically so like in the last show where I was just kind of standing on the side for most of it and dancing which is fine with me (laughs) there was a moment where they picked me up and once I felt like they had me solidly I was trying to physically fuck them (laughs) I saw this I watched this From on top of someone's shoulders. So it's finding those places of art. But I think it is like versus being coming in as like teacher or caretaker. It's me coming in as little kid being like, I want you to like, I think that's what's happening in my clown thing right now that I'm like hyper aware of being like, oh, yeah. Or you'd like to feel more fun and more free, which is, I think, why I did that stupid thing at the clownies. I was like, this is just for me. It may not happen. It's not about anyone else. And that's what made it joyful. So finding more spots for that. Yeah. I think people like you and I need to hijack shows sometimes because it's just not our nature. Our nature is to support. Our nature is to sort of bring it all together. One of the reasons I work with my group Flawless. So Flawless, six female identifying improvisers slash clowns. And I play 
the live director. I'm sort of the narrator. And I've really been working to balance my contribution because there are times where I start to catch fire a little bit as I work the crowd. And I would have every right to keep going because it's burning. You know what I'm talking about? Like, this is working. Oh, but I know in the big picture, the best show is when I do less and let them have the most time because it just takes them a little longer to cook, you know, because they're all great, but they don't yeah. have my level of show sense, right? They don't have the big picture sense. Their play is unique and delightful and they all have specific personalities and the audience loves them but they have to have room to find it. And because I've been doing it longer, I can find it real fast. Yeah. I can find it and jump on it. There have definitely been times where we've had a show and afterwards in the car, I'm like, you took up too much oxygen in that show. People liked it, but it would have been a better show. It would have been a better show if you took less and gave them more and let them build their heat at their pace. And so like, that's like one of the new challenges for me is it's not enough to be the one who can deliver the laughs you have to be a teammate that delivers the best overall product. And it, it's not going to be a, a lot of you. It's not going to be a ton of you. It should be much less. Yeah, you're the, you're the seasoning. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm the seasoning. I'm there just to break tension and create a little intrigue. And then they're the ones who need to find all the play. Mm. Well, and I think that staying in relationship to that conversation with yourself, like that's what that's important to me. Taking my pulse after a show or before a show and being like, where were you? Where did you want to be? And like, were you aware of it? And what would you change next time type of stuff? I was thinking about this in improvs. And I wonder if there's any like aspect that goes into clown. When we're improvisers, we talk about being like, we're writer, we're director, we're actor. We're all those things at the same time. And it's not quite true. Because when we're improvising, we're co-writers. We're co-directors. We are actors. And so that's also the part where it's you are the you are in control of yourself and your reactions as actor and human and clown and person. The other things you're in active collaboration. So if you get too caught up in like, I see the scope of this or I know the story or I, oh, I got the game, then you've pulled yourself out into your writer brain or your director brain, which is like there are aspects of it that's useful. But the only thing that you're really doing is is your acting and your whole you're, you're collaborating, which I think is important for me to remember. In Clown, I think a lot of that is true. It's just more complicated because it's about authentic self. Yeah. So you're in a group sometimes and there's someone like a Juzo in the group or someone like an Oscar in the group. You know, Oscar's uh, someone in Mum with uh, Andiel. And they have a specific set of skills. Not to, well, Maybe I should say it like Liam Neeson. They have a specific set of skills. Bad, right? Um, I never get to do that stuff because I don't regular regular improvise. I would love to do a Liam Neeson. In, are you kidding me? In a Herald? Oh second my God. Are you kidding me? Pull it all together. Be the run out. Run out of the decade. <laughs> Instead of being like the 96 Chicago Bulls, we're like the Avengers. So everyone has a superpower. And so we're not only are we trying to balance that shared collaboration, but we're also trying to acknowledge some people are the Hulk. And some people are, you know, Green Lantern. Like they, we have different things that we do. We're not all doing the same thing in different colors and flavors. We literally bring completely different things to the table. And that is the challenge. There might be just someone on your squad that is never going to take any accountability, that is just going to come out and bumper car everybody else and the audience will love them. 
What is our job? What is our superpower? Are we getting trapped in a superpower we don't want because we're good at that thing? Well, yeah. And like, are we allowing ourselves or our groups or our friends to also be flexible? Because I feel like we find or we want to find that superpower or our thing so quickly that sometimes we forget that we can pop in and out. Like that that's yeah. one thing. And yes, that might be central. It's like, if I'm in a show, I'm 90% of the time, I'm going to do X, Y, or Z. I think about it uh, improvising a lot. Because generally speaking, if I'm going to a festival, the first thing I want to bring as an improviser, right, is mischief and energy. But that means if I'm not aware, I'm never going to be doing real vulnerable work, which I also love because I come from a theater background. And so it's being intentional or purposeful when those things fall out of sync. Because then it's like, oh, on the that, oh, the she goes wild. And it's like, yeah, but I'm missing... I, I'm missing those moments of like connection and vulnerability. You can be the ground. Yeah. You know, you can, you know, you can have those moments. Yeah. And sometimes for our teammates, it's that we spend so much time in the other energy, like our primary energy. They just don't even think to put us there. They don't think to set us yeah. up to be in those positions. Yeah. And so, yeah, fi like finding those ways to open up, I think is really beautiful. Like, yeah, you can have your thing or your things. And also. One of my challenges teaching beginning clowns is I am a firm believer that the first step is embracing what you are naturally, what you are naturally. You know what some people are naturally? They're just the grounded reality of people who want to do well. They aren't the people who are going to get the big chaotic laughs because they're so wild and mischievous. And a lot of times in a class, I know that there are people who are there because they want to explore that part of them. And I need to give them room to do it. Like I need to give them room to do it, but also I need them to be cognizant if the audience isn't receiving it. Can I show you how you could get that laugh being yourself? And then once you're good at that, yeah. now, now that you're good at that, you can subvert yourself. I had a student just this weekend. It was just very clear that they wanted to be an agent of chaos. Like they had driven up, it's Elliot. Elliot, you listen to this podcast. Elliot had driven up. He's a, I like Elliot. He's he's a delightful young man. But he, on the first day of a two-day intensive, he was like, I'm going to come in with all the tricks. And this. I want to be that clown. That's the coolest one. The coolest clown who's just like breaks all the rules. And he pissed everyone off. And I kept bringing it up. I'm like, you are eating shit, Elliot. I was like, you keep doing all these cheap tricks. You're not getting a fucking laugh. You know, because I can do that, right? Because yeah. I do it, like you said. From a place of love and kindness and honesty and we all fucking crave that we crave someone to be honest with us in a kind way i feel like i know i do i don't know if it's like if you're like this but i went so long because i was like fine without getting any notes and we crave it we crave someone being like i see your shit i like you but also i see your shit first class where you don't get notes first class when you get good enough not to get notes what a delight. You're like, here I am. Second class, you're like, what am I doing? How do I make it better? Like, Look at me. <laughs> yeah, you, you peacock around for six weeks being like, that's right. The teacher keeps bringing up how I'm supporting the scenes the best. The teacher keeps bringing up how I know when to edit. And then the second class, you're like, I do I actually want to get better. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I just to be clear. But yeah, Elliot, by the way, came in the second day and completely changed his tune and now everyone adored him but then once he got adored 
he started testing it again. And I was like, oh, what a, what a weekend for him. You know, what a weekend to see like, oh, that's how it works. Yeah. I love that. Like, but I love that base. Be yourself first. Like walk into a room and be a human. Let's all be humans together first. Let's figure out what that is or in clowning, like what works for you organically. And then let's build and push and play. Let's create a playground where all of those things can live together. Because that's also what makes I feel like you're rousing so successful and joyful and your workshops so fun is they feel like we get it all. Like I get to feel like a person. I get to react honestly. And then I get to push and see if I'm getting pushed. Let me ask you this, though, as a teacher, do you think that sometimes the problem is when you ask people to be themselves and you assure them that's the best way to get a laugh, that deep down they just don't like themselves? That insecurity exists. So it's not as much that they want to be oh, yeah. the party animal. It's just like, I'd rather not be here, me. Like, I want to have an alternate version of myself that goes on stage. <laughs> when I was working with Juzo and I realized that my frustration was my central source of laughter, I was all in immediately. Like, I was frustrated with him, but those laughs immediately were what I was chasing. I was also older. You know, I'd been around a little bit. I, I'd gone through shit. And sometimes with these young students, I'm like, oh, you aren't sure that you have value. And so you believe you have to be someone else as a clown for us to love you and that that's what I'm battling with. And obviously, I'm not qualified to battle with that. I do not have the training. I am not a therapist. I'd love to encourage someone to see themselves, but also I don't want to get into like what this is really about. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't really in a class, <laughs> especially a three-hour class. You're like, let's just, can we all just, it's hard to be a human. Um, <laughs> started that way. I think it's a couple of things. I think it's protective, right? Like we've worked so hard to create or to, to, to some people to work ourselves up to even being in a space of creativity. Because I think that something I forget is how hard that of walking into the room of walking into an improv room and saying, I'm, you don't know what I'm going to do, but the base of this is you don't know what's happening and then you have to perform. I think that's terrifying. And I yeah. think people can get into their heads thinking, I got to be funny. But in improv, like what we used to say at workshops, especially when we would teach in business schools, is like, to take this off the table, you do not have to be funny. We're going to have some fun. We're going to connect. We're going to get out of our heads. And then funny is the byproduct. Like, and, and then getting people to engage and trust that long enough to feel it, I think is the magic of it. It's like, if I can get you to trust me long enough to feel the difference of when you're working really hard to create something and you put up this mask versus when you're just engaging and connecting in a space, being inside your body and like creating something that surprised you. And I think that's like, that's kind of the work that we do is need you to trust me long enough to feel what it feels like. And I don't know if it's like, I mean, I know I don't like my <laughs> or like we, you know, like we struggle with those things of like, and I think part of it is just confusion or not knowing what that means of like, just be yourself seems very straightforward, but it's the same way if I in an, in an improv class and like play close to self. People, for some reason, play the most boring version of the, themselves, <laughs> of like devoid of their own personality that we've seen when they talked. They're like, I got to play grounded. Okay. And I was the same way because I'm a character actor. So I was like, 
I'll probably, I should probably just play a goblin. Like that's probably better versus these aspects that you see in other people, right? Like I look at Chad and I see so many things and some of them I can't name, but all of them are enthralling and I want to see more of. We don't give ourselves that same mirror or we don't see it in ourselves. In improvisation, giving something to hold on to or, or showing them what's already there that they don't need to work so hard to do. And I feel like 90% of what I do as an improv teacher is just try to strip a little bit of that away. Like, you don't have to be cool. You don't have to know. You don't have to worry. Let's play. Well, Andiel, this has been a pleasure. And unfortunately, I have to now shift to a much more serious tone as we've reached the end of this podcast. You have listened before. You know what's coming. I'm going to ask you, what is clown? If you give a perfect answer, something I could tell my friends, family, and loved ones that <laughs> succinctly explains this work and what I'm doing and why I'm passionate about it, this podcast is over. That's the only reason I'm here. However, if it's even 1% off, if it can be improved at all, I will continue on interviewing people of interest, hoping to find answers. Remember what you said about wanting to be that grounded, okay? You're falling apart right now. Remember what you said about your duality. <laughs> Immediately, old-timey prospector voice comes out. I'm like, don't do this. <laughs> Andiel, what is clown? A shared spark of connection. Oh, nice. Nice and economic, too. A shared spark of connection. It's really good. I'm going to tell you why I'm going to keep going. Okay. But also, should I just say it again in the prospector voice? All right, let's just, okay, before I, because maybe that's the problem. Do it one more time in the prospector voice, and then I'll decide if I'm going to keep going. I barely, it barely understood you. I barely, um, so that was a very, like, that's a prospector that can't even go into town because no one understands them at the general store. Like, they have one of those accents where it's like this, Raleigh can has to stay at the mine. We have to do stuff for we understand him. But nobody else will. It's actually one of my favorite attempts at this. One because also it has the courage to be brief. And maybe this is wrong of me, but it is my podcast. But at the end of the day, I can't help thinking it might be influenced by some of your right wing ideology. <laughs> and I don't I, I can't see it yet, but like, God forbid I end this podcast and then I find out that maybe it's like kind of like hashtag free the children and I don't know oh it. Oh my God. Oh God. Oh my God. That's my nightmare. Is your nightmare that you become like a Pepe the Frog type character that people are like, Andiel has now become the face of a movement you despise? Yes. Had no, had no idea, but just like freely quoting, bumper sticker quoting, right? There's a comedian named Jim Brewer. Do you know Jim Brewer? Uh, SNL? He was on SNL. He did The yeah. Goat Boy. He went yeah. through a lot of stuff with the vaccine and a bunch. He went full, oh. I wouldn't say full QAnon, but definitely became party to like some real deep right wing stuff. And some of my favorite clips online are Jim Brewer, who is a good comic, destroying at like CPAC conventions. <laughs> like he's. he's <laughs> 
Because normally they bring people in who just have no skill at all because right wing yeah. people tend not to be funny, but he is funny. And so like he's doing a whole bit on how Fauci is a parrot. And I'm like, this bit is good. Like it's it's oh. bad shit. Like the messaging is garbage to watch these conservatives experience laughter for the first time. Like is oh. I'm watching someone who actually is capable delivering information on message to them. Oh. They're it's like a uh, delirious, you know, remember, remember watching Eddie Murphy's delirious, like people are like, they're like this, this is this something new. Um, but you know, like, and cause also you're completely revolt. Cause he's just like my parents, you tell me get this vaccine. It's <laughs> like, Oh, this is horrifying. And so that's terrifying. Maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. And uh, again, I brought all that up because that's how you made me feel. Honestly. <laughs> That's how I felt when you did that. No, uh, um, you're like, be grounded. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> well, Andale, this was a wonderful first long conversation with you. I'm glad we recorded it for posterity. Yes, I'll look back at this. I'm going to put your socials and anything else you want in the episode notes for those listening. Also, get those tickets early for Stand Up and Clown. I do have a Substack. That link is also in the episode notes. But until we speak again, my friends, keep on clowning.